There's no doubt that COVID-19 has changed our lives forever. After two months of hibernation in Australia, states are slowly beginning to open things up again. We've heard the term the new normal over and over again, but what does the new normal look like? Hello and welcome to the Grattan podcast. I'm Kat, the Head of Digital Communications at Grattan, and here with me today to discuss what life after lockdown looks like is health fellow Hal Swearison. Welcome, Hal. Hi, Kat. So, Hal, we've been in lockdown for two months now in Victoria with many of us working from home and even schooling from home. It's been tough for many people, especially those in hospitality and the arts. But it seems that the COVID-19 restrictions in Australia have worked, haven't they? They have, I think, Kat. The, if we look back to March, we had about uh, 500 cases a day at the peak um, in mid-March. And if we had continued with that exponential trend at that time, we could have got to uh, something like uh, 10,000 cases a day by the middle to late April, and that would have led to uh, 100 deaths a day. So we were all watching um, uh, Italy and uh, the emerging problems that were happening in Europe at the time, and I don't think anybody wanted to see that happen in Australia. And so the restrictions which were introduced by the um, Commonwealth and the state governments in uh, mid to late March have been extraordinarily effective and we've uh, managed to uh, reduce the rate of infections now to less than 20 a day and the total number of deaths in Australia is only around 100 now and compared to other countries uh, that's uh, a phenomenal success. So we've, we've really been um, extraordinarily successful in the uh, management of the virus uh, in Australia and in uh, and in reducing uh, the the burden of deaths and disease which otherwise would have occurred. Absolutely. And last week, the Prime Minister announced a plan for three-stage easing of restrictions. Is there a risk in opening up again? And and what is that risk? Yes, there is. Uh, what's happened in in other countries? Um, has been that once uh, they have opened up, uh, there has been in some places a second wave of infection. Probably the most um, notable one was Singapore, which had a really very successful uh, program of restricting the virus and then um, uh, had a second wave, which uh, was, there were some unique circumstances in Singapore, which had to do with migrant workers, but nevertheless, what was clear was when you when you lift restrictions, there is a there is a risk that infections will reoccur. This is a virus which is has some unusual characteristics, which make it um, highly transmissible. Particularly the fact that many people are asymptomatic, um, that is, they don't have symptoms, but they have the virus, or they have very mild symptoms, and that means that they don't know that they are potentially passing on the virus. And so uh, once you lift restrictions on spatial distancing, um, there is a risk that, um, that there will still be people in the community who are asymptomatic or have very mild levels of the virus who may pass it on. And that's more likely once you lift restrict the restrictions that we've got at the moment. So we do have to be very careful about uh, lifting restrictions, even though we have a very low rate of um, 
people who are infected at the moment. So how can we prevent a second wave of restrictions? Well, I think the most important thing that will have to be in place is that we have a very, we have a very um, capable regime of testing people and then once people are, um, are found to be infected, that we then trace everybody that they've had contact with and that we then require people to be isolated, that they isolate themselves so that they don't transmit the virus to other people. Uh, what that really means is that you have to have a very, uh, you have to have a large number of tests going on. So anybody who feels like they're symptomatic um, is tested and that we have testing in, in uh, high risk situations like um, healthcare or um, where you've got people who have a lot of contact with other people. Uh, and that you have a very rapid tracing system so that once you find someone who is infected that you, you very quickly follow up the people they've had contact with so that you get those people during the period that they are incubating the virus rather than transmitting it. That means you have to get to them within about five days. Uh, and then that you get those people to isolate and not transmit the virus to others. And that's, that's a critical thing in terms of um, reducing the likelihood of a second wave. The other thing is to that re we really do need to maintain our, um, our personal uh, hygiene and infection control procedures. This is the thing about washing your hands, making sure you don't touch your face, that you are very careful about the, um, the surfaces that you touch and that you clean them, and that you um, make sure that if you do have any symptoms that you don't transmit them to others. Uh, so that's very important. And as we, and then the other thing that's very important is that we lift restrictions carefully and slowly so that we monitor what happens so that we don't end up um, having uncontrolled spread uh, quickly. So that means staging the lifting of restrictions for workplaces, for social events, and so on. You've mentioned too that contact tracing becomes especially important when things open up again. What's the importance then of downloading the COVID Safe app? So the COVID Safe app uh, is is really about assisting the public health people that are going to do the contact tracing to do that quickly and efficiently. So the way the COVID app works, the COVID Safe app works, is that basically as you move around with your phone, it um, it does a, a virtual handshake with other phones through Bluetooth and uh, so you register on your phone who you've um, been in contact with uh, and for more than 15 minutes. And um, then uh, what uh, happens is if you are unfortunate enough to become infected, you have the opportunity that you, you then can authorise um, the release of the data from your phone so that the contact tracing people in public health can follow up with all the people that you've had contact with so that they can be tested and, if necessary, isolated. Um, and that is much quicker if those people then have quick access to the data on uh, who you've had contact with rather than having to do a lot of work with you to actually identify those people. And the faster that people can be uh, traced, the more likely it is will prevent transmission from occurring. There's a piece you've written recently that's available to read for free on our website. Um, but in that piece, you've identified three main areas where things are going to change. 
uh, workplaces, the home and leisure activities. First up, I'd really like you to take us through what this new normal looks like for workplaces. Well, workplaces are one of the areas, probably, probably one of the most significant areas that has to be managed if we're going to be successful at um, reducing transmissions and keeping the spread of the virus to a minimum. And uh, some of the things that probably will have to happen is firstly, and most significantly, I think um, you and I, Kat, are both experiencing this at the moment, is that um, we'll see a lot of remote working so that people will continue to work uh, at home um, rather than going in to the office or to the shop, uh, to, to the, um, the factory or the shop if they can. Now, some people obviously can't if you're a, you're a, um, if your uh, work requires you to be at the work because from the nature of the work, then that, that becomes impossible, obviously. But many people can. And so there'll be encouragement for that to continue. For those people who do go in and, um, and are at work, uh, the, some of the things that I think will happen in, uh, will be much uh, more uh, focus on redesigning the workplace for the moment. Some of the things that will probably happen are staggering work times so that um, we don't end up with uh, pressure on the public transport system or on, on the commuting system. So there'll be some thinking about uh, redesigning work so that people start at different times, redesigning break time so that people uh, don't all have lunch at the same time. Uh, there'll be a real emphasis on cleaning workplaces so that um, people uh, have safe surfaces that they're dealing with. There'll be uh, a real emphasis on maintaining uh, spatial distances in workplaces so that people don't unnecessarily have um, a risk as a result of being in close contact with other people. Uh, so there are, that will, um, will take a fair bit of work on the part of uh, organisations to think through how that will occur so that the scheduling of things like meetings and um, supervision of staff and uh, the design of work tasks and so on are going to have to be rethought. And that's actually going to take more time uh, to do than was the initial um, uh, sending people home. So bringing people back to work is actually going to take a little bit more effort and thought than what happened when we uh, shut things down. So there'll be, a, there'll be a big effort on many organisations' parts to think about how they're going to redesign the workplace to make them safe. Uh, and that'll take a little bit of effort. Yeah, and you and I have both experienced this working from home, but I'm wondering how this is going to continue to affect our home lives, especially in things like shopping and eating out. Yeah, that, that's a really important point. Um, some people have found that working at home is great. Other people have found that it's, it's not so terrific. Um, you know, puts, puts stresses into the home life that otherwise weren't there, that they weren't really set up to to work at home. Um, other people have, have been doing that for longer and have found that to be, you know, less of a strain. So we're going to also see some, ha some having to think about how we adapt at home. Um, shopping, I think uh, we're already seeing a massive increase in uh, online shopping and uh, shopping itself has changed so that um, shops and restaurants and, um, and, uh, and, and so on are much more likely to uh, be offering takeaway arrangements. And I think we'll see more of that. It's unlikely, I think, that we'll see um, 
uh, a rapid return to um, uh, the life we had prior to restrictions being introduced. So more activity around um, uh, really uh, managing risk by having things brought into the into the home rather than going out. Um, part of it also will be how we manage our social contacts. Um, there'll be uh, and and that'll vary depending on on age groups as well. So people who are older and more at risk or who have pre-existing conditions will have to be uh, careful with who they have at home and how they manage uh, infections as well as where they go. So it'll it'll vary for different groups. Um, and it's not yet clear how that will all play itself out. But I expect that we won't go back to the, the sort of life that we had um, prior to restrictions quickly. I think that'll take time. And that dovetails quite nicely into my next question for you. I think all the, the sports diehards are out there wondering, <laughs> what does this mean for watching sport? Well, I think that... Um, that Collingwood should be awarded the flag immediately, um, <laughs> and uh, and we should um, we should recognise that uh, that they've done very well in the first round of the competition. So no, I think what what it means for sport obviously is that um, uh, the um, that the crowds won't go back, not the large crowds won't go back uh, immediately, uh, and I suspect that that's. It's unlikely we'll see large crowds for the foreseeable future. Uh, so sport will be much more something we watch virtually. Um, undoubtedly, that will occur fairly soon. People want that to happen. We'll see how that experience feels for people. That That's something we haven't tested yet. The other part of it, I think, though, setting aside the, um, the sports like the AFL and the NRL, is what happens with local uh, sport um, where people are participating. And, Again, local sporting clubs and organisations are going to have to think through how they manage that, what they do about um, crowds, social distancing, what they do about contact sport. Um, and we will need to work our way through that. That isn't yet clear how that, that will occur. But I think many people will want to see sport um, reoccur. I think it probably will, but we'll see it happen with... Um, with restrictions and careful management will be required. Uh, and we'll have to watch the data on that to see um, whether there are risks with, with um, reintroducing sport at the local level. Yes, it's a difficult question at this time and one that's on everyone's minds. You touched a little bit beforehand on something I wanted to dig into, and it's about how we support vulnerable members of our community at this time. And I'm thinking particularly of the elderly, those with chronic health issues and the unemployed. Yes, I think, um, I think uh, there, there are many people who are vulnerable and I think we can split that into, into two broad camps. One of those that, is, that become um, vulnerable because of health issues and this is, the data is clear that um, older people are much more likely to be um, affected uh, badly by the virus than younger people, uh, particularly children. Um, so older people and those who have underlying health conditions will need to be careful uh, how they uh, manage their relationships with other people so that they don't end up in a position where they're likely to 
uh, be infected. On the other hand, um, it's also important that they are not completely isolated. So um, what we will need to do, some people who are, who are um, quite capable of managing their own lives and so on, will, will make decisions about how they do that so that they're careful. But people who are in institutional settings, residential aged care and so on, we do need to work through a better um, uh, systems and arrangements so that people have contact with people they love and care about and that those who care about those people in residential care have the opportunity to visit them. Uh, it, life does require, you know, it isn't just about not being infected, it is, a, it is about having a, a decent quality of life. And so we'll have to balance that up and that'll mean the use of virtual technologies as well as uh, careful management of risk of who comes in. But there does have to be uh, there does have to be the opportunity for people to, to have a social life in those settings. The other group that's uh, at risk of people who are on low incomes, who are casual workers, who are unemployed and so on, part of that's about um, just the uncertainty of not having any money and so on, and that introduces a whole lot of social stresses and strains, which uh, and I think there are concerns about people's mental health and so on, which have been raised. The other thing that happens is if you're a casual worker and you haven't got any money uh, and you become symptomatic, then there's pressure on you to go to work because you need the money and at the same time there's pressure on you to stay home because you're infected or you're potentially infected. We have to make sure that we don't put people in a position where they have to make a choice between um, earning money so that they can live and um, not passing on the infection. So that's why things like the JobKeeper and the Job Seeker schemes are really important and it's very important that they're not dropped um, too soon, um, that there's a decent scheme to maintain people so that they don't put others at risk. I think that's a really good point that we still need to be thinking of the vulnerable in our community while we're um, coming out of COVID. Um, but also you make a really good point about that we all deserve a really good quality of life, um, despite everything going on. Yes. Um, and the ways that we can do that uh, are going to be different, but um, it's still really important. So my, one of my final questions is that these are really great suggestions, but how do governments get people to do the right thing? Well, I, I think it's interesting, actually, because what happened early on is that um, if I said to people, if I said to you uh, in um, November last year, look, you know, we're going to close down the country, we're going to, we're going to spend $160 billion on uh, support, we're going to um, uh, end up with uh, enormous restrictions on people's social lives and their working lives and so on, I think you would have said, yes, well, you're going to need to convince me that that's going to happen. And yet we did that virtually within a a week or so within you know a couple of weeks we we went um, into huge restrictions and people accepted that because they saw that as being absolutely necessary because they could see the spread of the virus internationally and the chaos that it was causing and the deaths that were happening and so on now that we've reduced the level of spread and we've we've got a measure of control of the virus and we're now looking at re lifting restrictions we're going to have to work much harder at convincing people um, about future uh, efforts which are going to be required. So governments are going to really have to engage and they're going to have to explain and they're going to have to take people with them on the journey 
that's going to require a lot of information, both through the media, but also through organisations, local government, uh, community organisations, sporting organisations. There's going to have to be an enormous amount of engagement with business, with unions, with uh, community groups to make that happen. And th that will be critical if um, we take people uh, on, the, on the next steps. Um, it, without that, I think, uh, there will be resistance and there will be difficulties. We've seen some of the more extreme versions of that uh, a little bit in Australia, but a fair bit in the United States as people have um, reacted to restrictions. And I think as we go forward, it will be very important for government to uh, have, a, have a very clear uh, system and set of arrangements for engaging with the community about where we're going and why we're going there. Yes, that's right. And there's a very interesting piece on our website as well that's also there for you to read by Marion Terrell, uh, which ties into this conversation about uh, restrictions. And it's interesting to see that people were actually abiding by uh, the spatial distancing restrictions even before the government actually brought them in. So they were spatially distancing themselves um, even before the rules came in. Um, so I'm hoping that Australians will still embrace um, the restrictions on their lifestyle and still maintain um, what they've been doing beforehand and keep doing the right thing. <laughs> I hope so too, Kat. I think that the issue there will be what I, what I personally what I've found is that uh, you know, and I and I've been doing public health for a long time. Um, that this is a once in a you know a hundred years uh, phenomenon, and the data is has been changing, and so. What, what will be important is that people see what's going, you know, see what's happening and that we keep changing as, as we need to on the basis of the information which is in front of us. Much of this, we just don't know what's going to happen. And so it's very important that we keep talking to people about that. We've changed our position uh, from early January to where we are now uh, three or four times in terms of how seriously we thought it was going to affect us what restrictions we thought we'd need and so on. And that's going to keep happening because we just don't know all the things that, that affect us in relation to this virus. We don't know when there's going to be a vaccine, if there's going to be a vaccine. We don't know if there's going to be treatment, if there are going to be effective treatments. We don't know what the long-term effects of this virus are on people. We don't know whether people will, will have long-term immunity if they catch the virus. So there are many unknowns in this. And so we just have to keep engaging with people and being honest with them about what we do and don't know. Absolutely. I think one of the things is that it's quite hard to be optimistic with all this uncertainty going on, but can we be optimistic about life after COVID? And what can we do to make the most of this new normal? Well, I think, you know, I think history tells us that in the end, um, unless this is a very, very unusual situation that, uh, pandemics uh, uh, reduce and we, we will come out the, the other end of this. So there's no doubt that, um, that uh, we, will, we will come through this. Um, it will take some time and there will be a period of, um, of adaptation and change as has happened in the past. Um, the, there are some things that are, that are probably going to be uh, because it's such a disruptive um, uh, set of circumstances, there are some things which 
will mean that we end up with some permanent change and that might be for the better. Some of the things like the introduction of telehealth um, services, uh, the remote working arrangements, which working home arrangements and so on. Um, you know, there are, there are things which probably will cause us to reflect, well, we could do things differently. I think more broadly, we've seen that uh, governments are very important to us when things uh, like this happen. And so we, we're probably going to be a bit more supportive of government action and government intervention and the, and the role of government than we have been over the last 20 or 30 years as a result of this. So there are some good things that, that will come out of this and some adaptation. It's too soon to say what they really are going to be. We've only been in this situation for a couple of months, but I expect that, that there are already uh, some things that we can see on the horizon, which have been good. Um, we've also discovered the virtual world and I, you know, you can do Zoom, <laughs> can do Zoom sessions with our friends all over the world and so on. So there's some terrific things which have emerged. Some things are going to be difficult. Um, people's uh, social circumstances are changing. Lots of people are unemployed. There's going to be stresses and strains and they, they will be a challenge. And so it will be important that, that we have a, a constructive approach um, and one which is supportive for the foreseeable future. So it's a mix and it will depend on who you are as to how optimistic you, you feel about um, the circumstances. What will be important is that we continue to have an organised and socially responsible approach, um, both for all of us as individuals in dealing with this, but also collectively through government in supporting people who uh, really do need support uh, to get through the more difficult parts of, uh, of the, the impact that the virus had. Thank you so much, Hal, for your fantastic insights into this brave new world we are entering into. Before you go, Grattan Institute is a nonprofit organisation that relies on donations from people like you. We provide our independent research, events and podcasts free to the public. If you've found benefit in our work this year, please go to grattan.edu.au forward slash donate to support us financially. As always, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, hit subscribe on your favourite podcast app you can follow us on Twitter at Grattan Inst and Facebook, Grattan Institute. To all our listeners, please take care and thanks for listening. Bye.